Tell me, does it seem lately like people around you are hesitant to discuss Christianity? I'm Mike Sullivan, and ever since I was a kid, I've been fascinated with history and theology. And I'm inviting a new conversation to explore those questions about Christianity that you've always wondered about, but never really felt comfortable asking. Together, we'll boldly look into the historical accuracy of everything we've been taught in order to understand where these ideas really came from as we separate fact from myth and more deeply explore the messages and mindsets that make up the true core of this faith. I'm Mike Sullivan, and welcome to the Origins of Christianity. Hello, everybody, and welcome to session six, our last taping, our last taping Aww. of our series on the origins of Christianity. I've introduced us. If you're watching this, you've probably watched another one, so you know who we are. Yeah. Mike, Demetria, Sam, and Bob. The, a the silent, unseen Bob. Bob. A lot's been, happened over this time. I you've gained months. and lost 20 pounds. I've gained and lost 20 pounds. True. I've gained and lost... A boyfriend? Many boyfriends. <laughs> <laughs> so we do have to have an update. So are you still together with Truman? Yes. Yes. And are you happy? Yes. Do you have a happy boyfriend time? Yes. All right. And what about you, Sammy? How about old Southern money? Still going strong. I'm actually visiting him in Spain next week. Wow. See, yeah. when I first started, you guys were both very single. Yeah. And now you've found the love of your lives. It's true. Yeah. All right. So oh, here nice. we go. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Last one. Last one. I'm not going to go over what we said, all the last ones, but I do have, I do have to set the stage by talking about a little bit about what we talked last time. Last time we talked about Jesus dying and being resurrected. Mm -hmm. Right. And we went through how horrible it was when he died for him and all his followers. And we went through like the empty tomb versus the experience of risen Jesus, mm -hmm. meaning like it really seemed to be a faith experience of the disciples. And while they were scattered and scared and didn't know what to do, they had this experience and then everything sort of changed for them, right? They became energized and they were believers and they were happy and they were, they were all about it and they were everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, kind of like, uh, we use the example of Paul. Paul? Yeah. Yeah, Paul. He was a stoner. One who stones other people to death, not like you two. <laughs> <laughs> right, he stoned Stephen and held their coats while they stoned Stephen. And then one day he's on his horse and he gets knocked off. He has this experience of God saying, why are you persecuting me? And he's freaked out. And that one night changed his whole life. And he became Paul, the greatest evangelist in the history of the world. So um, what, what I want to talk about today is like, what was, what was it like in the very, very early church? Cause that's part of the origins of Christianity. There's no, there's no historian, a serious historian that will debate this, that Christianity really got started after Jesus died. That's when it got going. Okay. Cause before that was a few hundred people following this one guy around after that, it became a worldwide phenomenon. Right. And so what was that? And that's the last topic we want to talk about today is what, what did the resurrection experience mean to these people? And what was its meaning? What were they thinking about it? What was the mindset? And then, um, what did they do? Cause we kind of know what they did, right? They went all over Asia minor. They established these communities and people liked it. They liked it a lot. They, they joined in droves and they started living in common and like they're communist kind of 
you know, like the rich people would sell their land and give it to the people that needed help. They shared everything. They lived like brothers and sisters. They loved each other. They they treated each other good. It became like this different way of living, different way of thinking, and it spread and spread and spread and spread. What what was that way of thinking? And particularly, you know, what was the idea behind the resurrection? What what did that mean to them? Now we're getting away from our historical critical method a little. We are. We are because we're talking about like a faith experience, like a spiritual experience. And I don't. We have to describe it. Um, but the point isn't to advocate for its legitimacy because that's not what we're doing here. But the point is, is to understand what they were thinking. It's not so unusual. I mean, spiritual experience is part of the human condition, right? We see it in all cultures, all times and all people. Um, I want to say too, at the end, I think we can indulge ourselves a little and say, Hey, what do we think after hearing all this stuff? Ooh. I have a few comments and thoughts. Treat. I'd like to hear what you guys are thinking. Yeah. And I've written out a few thoughts myself, not to overdo it, but yeah. you know, hey, we can take a little license, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and indulge ourselves. Yeah. Right? Okay. So <clears throat> what did the 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 um the resurrection experience mean? Remember, they're scared, they're hiding in rooms, they think they're gonna die, and all of a sudden they have this experience and then they're changed. What what did it mean? And what it meant. Um, that was at the crucified Jesus, despite everything, was right. That's what it meant. It was a vindication, right? So it was like he said all this stuff, love your neighbor, forgive your enemies. He lived this life true to his word. And then when he went down, it was like the authorities had killed him and he was wrong and they were all going to die and it never meant anything. But with the resurrection experience, everything changed. They were like, God had acknowledged Jesus's um, words against the hierarchy of the time, right? We talked about all the different groups and how he was different. Um, mm -hmm. God was acknowledging it. This is right. Jesus was right. This is what God thinks, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, God acknowledged and approved of his message. Uh, Jesus had relativized the law. He said the law is there to serve human beings. And it's not there as an edifice to God, right? So we don't want to be legalistic piety people. You know, those religious people that are all like, I'm right, you're wrong, and you're bad. And Jesus was like, no, it's about being true to yourself. Look inside yourself. Hey, Pharisees, if you're without sin, you throw the first stone, right? And he was right. God God is saying the resurrection experience, what that means to the disciples is he's right about that, um, relativizing the law. He, he was right in identifying God's cause with humanity. So when he said that essentially that God's desire was for human beings to be well. That was God's primary motivation for us to be well and happy. Um, he was right. God acknowledged it, verified it, put a stamp on it by causing Jesus to be resurrected into God's reality. Um, he was right with his love of neighbor, his unlimited forgiveness, uh, and not just his message, but the commitment of his life, his perseverance, his courage, his willingness to go all the way to the end. Like, he went down and he was willing to do that. Um, that was given meaning by God's act of resurrecting him. Um, you know, he advocated for people forsaken by God, forsaken by each other, the lost, the poor, the suffering, the spiritually sick, the psychologically sick. These were Jesus's people, right? And with, with his resurrection, it meant that that was how God felt. That's who God was for, was, was the ones that went down. 
So by being assumed in the life of God, Jesus finally acquires credibility. You know, it's like, hey, yeah, he went down, but look, now he's in a place we couldn't even conceive of. Slowly um, in the early community, Jesus became to become closer and closer identified with God. Because he was there and he was like God's messenger. Oh, the cat wants to get in. I know. <laughs> so this way Jesus began to be identified with God, right? I mean, there was something divine going on in the minds of the disciples. I see we have acquired a cat. <laughs> cat is now in. <laughs> um, such that to be for Jesus was to be for God. And to be for God was to be for Jesus. Um, Jesus had talked a lot about the kingdom of God. Remember that we talked about that? He was one of those guys. He was like one of those guys who's like, the end of the world is coming. He's like, he would say, repent, reform your lives. The kingdom of God is at hand, right? Mm -hmm. um, what did that mean? Well, the kingdom of God was something you couldn't even point to. You have to use metaphors and examples. So he would talk about the great banquet, the ripe harvest, the, the royal feast. He would say things like, if a grain of wheat dies, it becomes a thousand times itself. But if it stays a single grain, it doesn't die. So it meant that you had to prepare, like convert. What was required was a change of heart. Um, so the, um, you know, he would say that all suffering, death, evil, uh, poverty would be gone in the kingdom of God. It's this idyllic thing where God would come down directly and rule over the people and all everyone would be transformed the way Jesus was transformed, right? Into, into a state of being in God's presence, love between people, no badness. This was the kingdom of God. And Jesus thought it was coming imminently and he thought it was certainly coming in his lifetime. And so did the early disciples. Remember I said that, that the early disciples, they didn't, they didn't write anything down because they thought that the world was coming, right? Yeah. But Jesus was, what was he? He was wrong, right? Jesus was wrong. How do you like that? I like it. What does it say about Jesus' divinity? What does it say about popes claiming to be infallible? I mean, he was wrong, right? And so the early church, they had to deal with that. They're like, and then slowly, like a couple of generations went by and nobody, it didn't happen. Yeah. Right? So they began to think of it in a different way, right? They began to think of it in terms of the resurrection. They said, somehow... Somehow, by rising Jesus, God brought his world into humanity. The idea being that Jesus was sent by God to say what he said and do what he did. And by doing that, God, God became transformed to people. God became more available to people. When we talk about the Old Testament God and the New Testament God, right? That's a change. It's a different image of God, certainly, right? So what they were saying is, look, in rising and get, having the experience of rising and spreading it out, God had put himself into the world. The kingdom of God had arrived. And so the goal of history remained the same, the arrival in the, of God in the world for all humanity. It was a, a history transforming event. It wasn't seen anymore as like this imminent thing. And I mean, you see these guys on TV and they're like, oh, the world is coming, right? Yeah. They can't let it go. Well, mm -hmm. obviously it's not. Who was that guy who said, unless I get $8 million um, for my parishioners, then God's going to kill me? You know? I don't, I don't think I heard of that <laughs> one. Of that. Yeah, there was one guy who did this. Um, he was one of those popular free church speakers um, on TV and everything. And he said, unless I get $8 million, then 
then God's going to kill me. (laughs) The Lord is my business. I shall not want. (laughs) Anyway, so this kingdom of God idea got um, changed. And then more and more, Jesus became like the conduit of God's renewal of humanity. And Thus, he became identified more and more as divine to the, to the disciples over time. And finally, get to John at, at the end of the first century. And John calls him the bread of life, the light of the world, the gate, the true vine, the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. Right? But, but why? Like, why did Jesus have to die? And why was him being raised have such an impact on on these people, what what is the meaning behind that? I mean, what what is that? You know, there was an early reference by Paul, later developed by Saint Anselm, where he said, "Well, here's why Jesus had to die because the world the world was out of balance when Adam sinned. It was perfect, but Adam sinned, and then there was sin in the world, right? And now Jesus had to be paid pay the price to correct the cosmic imbalance. What do you think of that?" It's a metaphor. It's not even a metaphor. It's a theory. Oh. But how does it stand up? Not well. Yeah, not, not well. Uh, because... You want to take this one? <laughs> it just doesn't seem legit. Yeah. Because mm. God is supposed to be a God of love and forgiveness, right? Yeah. Why does he need to make an innocent person die in order to get his get it back for Adam's sin? Yeah. What kind of cruel, capricious God is like that? Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Right? On the other hand, there's a lot of references to the New Testament that Jesus... So that theory was present in the New Testament by no, no means defined. In fact, there's all kinds of Christologies in the different communities. The people had different ideas about what Jesus' life and death and resurrection meant. And so there was never a defined like theology for it all. But there was different ideas running around. One of them was that Jesus died for us, for our sake, for all you know, that somehow this was an act for humanity, right? (laughs) Oh, Floyd, poor Floyd doesn't get enough love. No. Yeah. And that brings us back to Job. 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 My guy. J-O-B. Suffering. J-O-B. Evil. I was talking to a woman the other day, and she told me how her first three babies died within three days of being born. The more I talked to her, the more I thought it probably had something to do with drugs. Oh. Hmm. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeesh. Pretty bad, huh? Yeah. But you learn your lesson after this is <laughs> the human condition. I mean, we suffer all the time. We always suffer. We, when we get a cold, from getting a cold to having your baby die, we suffer. Like emotionally, psychologically, physically, we suffer. And then we die. Life sucks and then you die. Right. I mean, this is something that we all have to deal with. We're all the only creature on earth that understands that we're going to die. So by definition, in human beings live in an existential crisis. Like how, what does life mean? You know, why are we here? I mean, what's the purpose? We, and it seems bad sometimes. There's a lot of joy in life, but why are we suffering? Why does it have to be this way? And what kind of God allows the universe to be constructed in such a way that we suffer? I mean, this is the great rock of atheism. This is a great argument of atheism. If God's all good and all powerful, 
If he was all good, he wouldn't want us to suffer. If he was all powerful, he wouldn't let us suffer. So since we're suffering, God doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Right. And we all have to deal with this. We have to, we live in it all the time, like a, a search for meaning. Like, what, is there meaning or is it an illusion? Um, can we get gratified by meaning in terms of falling in love or having babies? But is it just a psychological event or is there something deeper? Um, is, is death the end? And if so, what does that mean for our lives? Or is there something beyond it? And this is, you know, philosophers and theologians and every human being has, has struggled with this. There's a suffering. It's, it's useful, I think, to compare Job and Jesus. The suffering of Job was at the hands of a God that was incomprehensible, right? God was incomprehensible. The Old Testament God could be loving. He could be slow to anger, rich in kindness. He saved the people from bondage in Egypt, uh, but he could be arbitrary and he refused to explain itself. And the expectation was you just accept it, right? But not the God of Jesus, right? The God of Jesus was Abba, like a parent who loves you. And, you know, a parent who loves you do anything for you and will always be there for you when you have a really hard time, when you're really down and out. But that's not what happened to Jesus, right? He was abandoned by his friends. He was abandoned by God. And he cries out on the cross, why have you abandoned me, God? And his death was concrete. It was real. It wasn't a story like Job is. Job's a myth. But mm -hmm. Jesus' death was real. I mean, he went down hard. And where was God? Where was God? God wasn't there. Yeah. So... In doing this, he participated in what every human and humanity itself collectively feels, like Jesus felt like we felt in a concrete and real way. There was no meaning or sense in life, and it ends in death. And that's what he felt. That's what he experienced, just like every human does. Um, and then, But then the senseless death, um, acquired meaning in the resurrection. For the disciples, only in light of the resurrection was there the prospect of a new life in God that, you know, he could see that God was with him. And the meaninglessness in light of the resurrection, not to take away from the experience of it, but the light of resurrection gave hope to Jesus, humanity. You know, it's not, it doesn't end there. Is, is the message. There's a promise of God's hidden presence. So in light of the resurrection, there's the, there's the um, recognition that God was there all along, right? That there was a plan, there is deliberate, that, that God, by God's action, suffering and death is giving meaning humans can't find on their own. So humans, we're living here, we're living in a biological reality. We face death and that's it. But with this story, this action of God in history, then, then death, suffering, they have new meaning. And then there's the hope of on the other side that you'll triumph over that, that you'll be put in a different state, that this is like a birth, life is like a process of birth. Giving birth hurts, but you come out and you're in a different place. And it assigns meaning to the process of pain. So evil, I have evil and suffering remain real, uh, but there's a hand outstretched across the chasm. So God is with you, not just in words, but in concrete action. Um, so God became man to be with us in our experience and experienced all of it all, but also showed that suffering and death are not the end of life.
that there's something more. I, I analogize it in my own mind to like a mother with a child, right? So let's say you're a mother and you have a little boy and he scrapes, scrapes his knee and he comes in and he's crying, right? So what, what's a mother's response? Um, mother's response, hold the child, say, there, there, maybe put some Band-Aid on it or whatever. And the child knows that the mother loves him and the child knows that the mother's there for him. He can feel that the mother's there for him. She shares his experience with him. And then she tells him it's going to be okay, right? Because she knows it's going to be okay. And then the boy has hope that it's going to be okay. He knows the pain will go away, right? This is the image, I think, of what's supposed to be the meaning of the, the crucifixion and the resurrections, God's identification with humanity. A human being having that's a Christian may not be able to explain or avoid suffering, but he knows a way through it. Um, Jesus talked about the God of the abandoned, the God of the lost. Um, this, in, in the crucifixion, Jesus became that abandoned and the lost. So he's always talking about them and then they can have the conversion experience and then they can live the, you know, they can get into a good place. It, Jesus lived that through. So he shows, not just verbalizes, um, a God who stands alongside humanity, who identifies with humanity, who loves humanity, a God pursuing humanity through history. Their evolution of their understanding of God is God pursues them relentlessly and then appears at the right time so that he can show by example all how he feels about humanity. Um, so the meaning of the crucifixion, the resurrection was seen as God's response to the existential reality of humanity, not to give an easy answer to the problem of evil, not to give a philosophical answer to the problem of evil, but to just be truly with humanity and thereby say, I'm with you as you go through this. There's always a hidden reality of God. So the other church started calling him the son of God, right? They say, and there's that Bible verse that says, God loved the earth so much that he sent his only son, mm -hmm. right? So Jesus became, through this understanding, like more and more identified with God because it wasn't just Jesus <laughs> on the cross, that was God on the cross because Jesus was so closely identified with God. And then they called him the son of God. In fact, he had a lot of titles. Um, he, you know, there's a whole question about whether Jesus is God, right? And we go to church and we say, we believe in Jesus, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light. So that's part of the Christian certainty now. But back then, it was more an evolving sort of understanding. They were enthusiastic. They thought Jesus was great. They thought he was a living, vibrant presence to set the standard for, um, for what, how we should behave towards each other and see each other and be with each other and be with ourselves. Um, but... Um, but they had all kinds of titles in their exuberance. They would give them all kinds of titles, everything they could think of. There was the Son of Man, the Lord, the Messiah, the Son of David, the Word of God, the Son of God. There was the term Christ. Now, Christ is not actually Jesus' last name. You'd think so, because they're saying Jesus Christ, right? It's a title. It's a title. It's like if you called me Mike the Great. Right. <laughs> if I was Mike from Playa Vista after I died and got resurrected, I'd be Mike the Great. Yeah. Right? It's like that. Christ means anointed one, and it meant that he was he was uh, the Messiah. All these terms are used interchangeably. They all had meanings at the time, but the meanings were changed 
uh, as these terms were adopted for Christianity to mean something different. So, for example, the Messiah was supposed to be a, a king warrior. This was how the Jewish people envisioned the Messiah. You know, they were living under Roman oppression. So this Messiah was supposed to come and lead them in battle and destroy the Romans and free the people. Mm -hmm. But as it was applied to Jesus, it meant something more. You know, it meant diff something different than was originally expected, which is typical of Christianity. You know, you don't see it coming. The ideas are like, you know, when Jesus says, forget, love your enemies, you're like, whoa, you know? Um, or the idea of the kingdom of God being happening now and all of a sudden, no, it was much more profound than that, right? And the same thing with Messiah. They would say Jesus' revolution was inside people. And so it meant a lot more, as we can see through Western history, a lot more than the idea of one people being freed by captors at a time. It was talking about inner liberation, like the, the freedom from the traps you set within yourself. And so, and so, you know, Messiah became to mean something totally different for all humanity in a more profound way. And then, you know, it's really interesting that Jesus never called himself God. He never said, I'm divine. He never said that. Um, in the late, late Gospel of John, you see him making a real effort to show that Jesus was divine because this was kind of an evolving understanding at the time. But Jesus never said that. He, sometimes he called himself the Son of Man. He would say the Son of Man, this, the Son of Man, that. He referred to himself in the third person. Mm -hmm. And that's an enigmatic term. Like, what does that even mean, son of man? I mean, mm -hmm. like, I'm a son of man. Mm -hmm. You're a daughter yeah. of man, right? Um, but what it meant at the time was that this was the person that was God's emissary that would come and judge the people at the end of time. That's what it meant for the Jews at the time. But again, it was adopted and changed uh, because Jesus wasn't, you know, he was in authority, but remember, he characterized himself differently. Like when they called him Lord. A, lo a Lord meant... Like the boss, if you call someone a lord, it's just like if you were, if you go to work today and you see your you would call her a lord, lord yeah, your boss. Either. Even though I know you don't, even though I know it's you know you don't work there that much. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> right, thanks. <laughs> so anyway, like um, like lord meant just someone in authority, like someone who was the boss. They would call Jesus lord, but then again, Jesus characterized himself not in authority. He wouldn't say obey me or follow my rules. Mm -hmm. He would characterize himself as a brother a friend, even a servant. Jesus called himself a servant, right? Mm -hmm. And he said, lower yourself if you want to be exalted, right? So this is a much, what kind of Lord does that? What kind of, you know what I mean? So the term Lord was used and still used today. We think of it as the medieval term, like the Lord and the vassals and the, right? right. But in that time, what it meant is they adopted this term of a boss and they, they had, Jesus was called Lord, but as the emissary of God and the servant of the people. So it changed. Again, not necessarily calling Jesus God. Even the Son of God, the term Son of that God at that time did not, Son of God did not mean you were necessarily divine. Um, kings in the East would be called Son of God. Heroes or demigods would be called Son of God at that time. So what it meant at the time was um, that Jesus was a representative of God. It wasn't about his origin, but his legal and authoritative status, not about his nature, um, but his function. It didn't mean that Jesus was necessarily a corporeal son of Jesus. Uh, it meant that he was of divine selection and authorization. That I just got and said, okay, you go tell the people what's on my mind. That's what the son of God meant in the very early church. So it's interesting because there seems to be an evolving concept of the divine, of Jesus being divine.
you know, I'm not going to get into it because it's outside the scope of origins of Christianity. But, you know, the second and third centuries, there's a lot of debate about whether Jesus was divine. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was a Gnostics who said he wasn't. They're a big movement for a long time, a lot of argument. It wasn't until the fourth century at the Council of Nicaea that they developed the Nicene Creed, which declared definitively that Jesus was God. I, the closest it got was that the, it seems to be an evolving concept. You know, as we got to John, the last gospel, remember Mark? Mark doesn't talk about Jesus being divine at all. Mm -hmm. He says, I'm gonna tell you the story of the son of God. He says that, but that's it, Yeah. right? By the time you get to John, you've got, in the beginning there was the word and the word became flesh. Right, and then you've got repeated references to Jesus' divinity, but that's a reflection of sort of an evolving understanding of Jesus' divinity. The church, you know, the early people, they didn't seem preoccupied with the philosophical question of what God was, of what Jesus was relative to God. They knew, though, that in being raised into God's reality, that and and having fundamentally given God's message in word and deed that there was something divine about Jesus. But they didn't they didn't define it really more than that or they differ in differing opinions. And they're just they weren't about defining it perfectly. They're about the 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 joy they felt in the spiritual experience they had had and expressing that and living it and spreading it around. That that really was their emphasis. Um, like all things Christian, it was more concrete than theoretical. It's like, how do you act? You know, that's how it got, that's what it boiled down to. It's like the experience, the transformation and the resulting change in seeing people through God's eyes and yourself through God's eyes. Um, that's how they lived. And with that, I am done. Wow. Uh, yeah, I am done. I think that's as full ex exposition I can give of without writing tomes about yeah. the origins of, of what Christianity is. And like I was saying at the beginning, I thought, well, you know, let's have some, I think we can indulge ourselves a little because we've shown incredible discipline in just reporting the facts. Yeah. Um, maybe I, I, I'm interested, I have a few thoughts and comments to conclude, just personal ones. Yeah. That's not part of the origins of Christianity, but what I think. Um, I'm wondering if you guys do too. I have something, but I don't know if it's like fully about this. Because uh -huh. I love the simulation hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And Elon Musk was saying that there's a one in a billion chance that we're not in like created by a simulation. And like Neil deGrasse Tyson thinks we are too, like without a doubt. So if that is true, does that mean that like, is there still a chance that Catholicism is real? Like if the simulation hypothesis is real? Like, or would that just be? Well, let's say we're in a simulation. Mm -hmm. um, do we, we still have things in our lives that are meaningful, like the matrix. Let's say we're in the matrix. Yeah. If you have a relationship with Sam, and you love Sam and she loves you, that's still real. Yeah. Or if you have spiritual experience, I think that still can be real. Yeah. It's just that your external environment is not what you think it is. Right, but then wouldn't that mean that, like, God didn't come down and Jesus didn't do well? Like, would, would that, would the story be true still? Well, I think um, the idea that God created the universe um, and you prove that by going through a causal chain all the way to the Big Bang, mm -hmm. 
is defunct because cause and effect don't exist at the Big Bang. Right. So whether or not God created the universe in the way we perceive it or whether in a matrix, I mean, who created the matrix, right? So, I mean, I don't really think it has a bearing one way or the other on, um, because what we're talking about here is spiritual experience and what that means to you. Yeah. I think that exists irrespective of our external environment. Yeah. That's what I think anyway. What do you think, Sam? <laughs> um, I'm not very familiar with the simulation hypothesis. Oh, you would love. Seems interesting, though. But I think what I've realized through doing these things is that I would still say I'm probably on the atheist side, but perhaps more of like a humanist in the sense that I believe in other people's Mm. goodness rather than like one like higher thing. Mm. I think that's what I've learned. So even if, I mean, look, if you you can't be a Christian really and thinking in terms of Jesus as God's emissary if you don't believe in God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. But there's still the message. Yeah. But what do you think of the message? Is it over the top or is it right on or? What message? <laughs> that like each is just love. Of unrelenting love for yourself and other people. Oh, I think that's right on, but perhaps I don't think it should come from like. The divine source. Yeah. I think should come within the person. Yeah, it's like, an. I think it should be inherent or at least taught, but not taught through the lens of like religion. Uh-huh. Just more so like moral and ethically rather mm. than like through a religious like way of looking at it. I see. I think I understand that. Yeah. Secular humanism. Mm -hmm. Well, I have a few thoughts. Do share. Uh, My first thought is that I'm really struck by the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees. Like this, the, the, the mindset and I'm a religious person. I know a lot of religious people and I see that all the time. You know, I see people like you know, I was raised Roman Catholic, right? So you see the vestments and the church and the canon law and the rules and the authoritative structure. And that seems it, it can seem more like a Pharisee than a Jesus type. Jesus was poor and yeah, you know, he, I don't think he would have understood much mm-hmm. of it. Right. Yeah. And I'm really struck by the difference in religious people that I see, because there's some people that live in religion in order to justify themselves. And then they look down on other people and they judge other people. They say they don't, but they do, right? And religion is a way for them to be better than other people. That happens a lot. And then there's the other type of person who has spiritual experience and that challenges them and they become more humble. And they really do, you know, adopt the mantle of caring for others and they act that way, Mm -hmm. right? And it seems to me that there's always this struggle in any generation among a religious religious people between, you know, the Pharisee and the Jesus figure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really struck by the difference there and how I think if you're going to be religious, you better be constantly reminded of what Jesus is really saying because it's easy to slip into I'm better than you mode, mm-hmm. right? So that was one thought I had. Another thought I had was, you know, we've gone along and we talked about separating myth from history. And we've really tried hard to do that, right? Mm-hmm. What's myth? What's history? And in our modern mindset, history is really important. We want to get the facts straight. What actually happened and what didn't happen. If it didn't happen in history, we tend to think, oh, well, then it's just baloney. Yeah. You know, but I hope what's not lost in the translation is how important myth is. I mean, um, 
like when I tell you the story, like I said about the boy who cried wolf a mm -hmm. hundred times. And you want to know that because a myth transmits a meaningful idea about life. Whereas history just gives you facts, right? Yeah. So myths are important and facts, truth is not just facts. There's more to it. And so that's why I think that I, I would hate if the idea of myth became devalued because in life you need meaning. You don't just get that from the facts. You really get them from the stories. Um, and so that's the second thought I had. But I still even feel like history itself is just a story. Cause it is, like, yeah. we're not really like, we're not necessarily getting facts right. per se. Like even when history is being retold, it's still somewhat of like a story. Yeah, even something like well-defined like the Holocaust. Yeah. Right, I mean, we get the facts. Yeah. But we have the facts. But what's the, what we get meaning for is a story. We hear yeah. the story and we go, but well, we can never let this happen again, mm -hmm. right? So um, I agree with you, you know, history is a story. Our lives are stories. We're dramatic creatures yeah. and we live through our stories. We don't really live in the facts. Yeah. The facts just give context for the yeah, story, exactly. right? But the meaning of life is found mm -hmm. in stories, so. And the last thought I had was, um, you know, what have we learned about the validity of Christianity given this whole exploration? And I think the answer is not that much. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's an interesting way to look at it, though. Yeah. Yeah, it's, like, it's good to, like... To, like, back away from it. Because yeah. I have always been, like, staunch atheism. Yeah. And, like, never, like, not looked at it from, like, one side or the other. But just, yeah. like, basic, like... But it's good to step away and see it objectively. Yeah. And then you can make your value judgments after that. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that's shocking, like you go through this, especially if you're raised Christian is like the birth stories are myths, but a lot of the story of the passion is a story. Mm -hmm. A lot of the stuff, you know, you realize that a lot of it is myth. Yeah. You know, and that can be hard if you've been raised to believe because you feel like you're betraying your, your faith structure. Yeah. Right. Or your and it's involved with your relationship with your family and, you know, but it's, 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 it's sort of a relief to kind of look at it and say, okay, I'm going to be honest about this. The miracles didn't happen. These were mm -hmm. narratives, right? Things like that. Um, what I wanted to say about um, Christianity itself is, you know, there is a couple aspects of it that I find compelling. You know, one is the message. I mean, this, this idea that God is as Jesus painted the picture so that all of being is permeated by benevolence and that that lives in us and is waiting for us to be open to it. That's mm -hmm. that's very compelling to me. And the the ethical message, like the idea of how the world could be, if we really live that way, that would to me that's very appealing. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the other thing that's appealing about Christianity to me is the idea that God's response to our situation in life is to be with us. That that to me is kind of mind blowing and and very profound. It's it's like the idea that. God doesn't give easy answers, but just lives in it with you. That there is a hand stretch across the chasm that we can take. Um, that's that's kind of an amazing idea to me. I, yeah. I really appreciate that idea. Um, I don't think that you could be a Christian or not be a Christian just based on an examination of history. Uh, you could be a Christian in the sense like maybe you are and that you fought, you think the ideas of ethical rules are good, mm -hmm. right? So Jesus is a great teacher. Right. Um, but to be a Christian in the sense that you accept that and faith experience is different. So my I have experience of, of God and um, spiritually, 
And what, what I've found in that is that it does correlate with this idea about God as Abba and being with you in your hardest times and at all times. Uh, that, that fits in really well for me. So at the end of the day, it, it rings true. That's why I think at the end, I am a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, if you ask me if I'm a Christian, I'd probably say I wish I was a Christian. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I mean who could live that way? Yeah. But in my best moments, I aspire to be. And when I, when I don't act that way, I, I try to make it right the best I can. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's, that's what I think. Fair enough. That's the tea. That's the yeah. tea, sir. That's the That's tea, a good sir. thing. Are we gonna? It's sad that it's over, though. I know. I know. I know. Let's make another series of something. Well, there's a there is a book by Hans Kung called The History of the Catholic Church. No, 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 no. But Dude, like, it is it is like eye opening. Uh, I believe that, but uh, like I could also see us doing like a, a radio, funnier thing. Radio show. Yeah, I just think so we just think all <laughs> have good. Um, rapport and banter yeah that mm-hmm. could offer. but it's not being portrayed well because i'm doing all the talking and yeah. this well like, it's just and a different this topic, topic yeah. is very um like for specific people yeah. it can't it's not very broad reaching right, right, right. okay well why don't we think about it and we come up with something because yeah. i've been enjoying this yeah it's yeah. lovely yeah bob we got bob. Bob's in. bob we gotta thank bob because he is awesome yeah. and doesn't yeah. talk our ear off and does his job and produces it and it looks really pretty and when we get it on youtube i'll show it to you and bob will be our hero thanks bob let's give a round of applause good job bob and bobby's got a little baby on the way yeah yeah (laughs) good job bob great white hunter make baby (laughs) all right so let's go ahead and sign off thanks for watching folks hope it was meaningful to you like it was to us signing off bye Thank you for listening to the Origins of Christianity. I'm Mike Sullivan, and I hope you enjoyed this latest episode. If you haven't done so already, I'd like to encourage you to hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to listen to this. And by all means, please feel free to leave an honest written review as well. There's so much more on the way next time, so stay tuned, and I'll look forward to talking with you again soon.